Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. So Anthony McCann is the author of four collections of poetry, including Thing Music, his book Shadowlands, Fear and Freedom at the Oregon Standoff, a nonfiction prose work investigating the 2016 armed right-wing occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, was a Los Angeles Times bestseller and a finalist for the Reading the West Book Award and is currently a finalist for the California Book Award. He teaches in the Creative Writing MFA and the School of Critical Studies at the California Institute of the Arts. And Anthony lives in the Mojave Desert, where Ben's book is set. Ben Ehrenreich teaches about climate change, no, writes about climate change for the nation. His work has appeared in Harper's, the New York Times Magazine, Los Angeles Times, and he has reported from Afghanistan, Haiti, Cambodia, El Salvador, and Mexico. In 2011, he was awarded a National Magazine Award. He is the author of The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine, one of The Guardian's best books of 2016. So I'm going to disappear and I'm going to turn it over to Ben and Anthony, who are going to um, do a, Ben's going to do a reading. Then uh, they're going to have a little conversation and we'll do a Q&A at the end. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Lane. Um, Thank you, everybody, for, for being here, wherever here uh, is for you. Um, and many thanks to Skylight for putting this on. I, for most of my adult life, I lived within a 15-minute, I'd say, with, with uh, on a good traffic day drive from Skylight. Um, and every book I've, I've published, uh, I look forward to a reading at Skylight. I was, before this one came out, I, I, I had the image uh, in my mind of, of standing um, in the middle of that bookstore and, and seeing you all there. And I'm sorry that uh, I can't actually be there and, um, and, and hug a lot of you, but uh, this will do for now in these strange new times. Um, and I also want to thank Anthony um, before I read anything um, and we start talking um, because he's one of my favorite human beings um, and he's a wonderful writer and you should click that button and buy all his books. Um, but uh, but also, I mean, Anthony read a draft of this book. He provided encouragement. Uh, he uh, listened to me babble about it and, and convinced me that I wasn't completely insane at various points. Um, <laughs> he wrote a blurb. Um, and on top of all that, I can't conceive of this book actually even taken shape if it wasn't for Anthony. Um, and as you'll see, I'll read the first little bit I'm going to read um, is from the very first chapter of the book. And it sets the, sets the background for this book. 
um, which really came out of a hike that I took with Anthony, um, who in the book is just known by his middle initial, um, and his partner, Kirsty Singer, who also is known by her first initial. Um, and we took this really extraordinary walk in the desert. I was living in Joshua Tree, Anthony lives in Joshua Tree. And, um, and it set me going on places I didn't expect to go. So I'll just read. The summer had passed, the monsoons had poured down in September, and though no rain had fallen since, the senna and brittle bush were still in bloom, smearing the sides of the wash a brilliant yellow. I don't remember what we were talking about, maybe Steve Bannon or the Lost Hikers or Roy Moore banned from the mall or the elusive scent of the desert willows that thicketed the floor of the wash. When Kay, walking ahead of A and me, stopped, she pronounced a single word, owls. They took to the air in a sudden rustling burst and then went silent. I barely glimpsed the first one, a flash of white wide wings as it glided by above us, too big a thing to be so quiet. It soared off in a broad arc and disappeared behind a hill to the west. The second one though passed low enough that for an instant I could see its flat tawny face, the mottled white and brown plumage of its belly, those bright alien eyes. It circled once and flew out of sight to the east. Eventually we breathed. With all their circling and swooping, Kay thought maybe there had been three of them, but I was fairly sure there were just two. We kept walking, the wash narrowing as we went until we had to scramble over boulders to proceed. We turned to bend. The owls were there, perched on a rock. They saw us first and flew off up the canyon. Again they separated, one arcing right, the other left. We thought that was it and picked up the conversation again. I know at some point we talked about Lebanon and Saudi Arabia, Saad Hariri's strange flight to Riyadh, Jared Kushner's visit the week before. All of that had filled me with a panic that lasted for days, the contours of the next global conflict revealing themselves, requiring only the smallest flame. Who would play the role of the Archduke this time? Who would kill him? Kay stopped again. The owls had roosted in the rocks ahead of us, as if they were waiting for us there. They flew off, and again we watched in silence. So it went. We scrambled on, following the canyon as it twisted left or right, expecting to see the owls at every bend. Every hundred yards or so, we caught up with them, and everything we had been saying felt suddenly impertinent, and we fell silent until they flew off and then walked on until we caught up with them again. We talked more quietly now, still surveying the crises of the day, pausing to admire a paper bag bush in unlikely late autumn bloom, or a particularly bold and healthy choya. And then the owls shut us up again. We saw them five times in all, maybe six, before they soared off into some more distant canyon and disappeared for good. I knew that we had been annoying them, that they were only trying to avoid us, and it's foolish, I know, but this is what humans do. We turn the world into a story and put ourselves into the center of the plot. And I found it hard not to imagine or to want to believe that they had been leading us onward all along, that they were trying to tell us something or to show us a path, one that led deeper into the wilderness, away from the highway away from the car. Before we said goodnight, goodbye that night, in the parking lot of the town's one Indian restaurant, the conversation turned to writing. A and K are both writers. It was getting harder, we agreed, to muster faith in any of it, to care at all about lit world battles that had once seemed so important, or even in the face of real planetary disaster, glaciers melting, oceans rising, droughts and fires and famines and floods, to care about something we'd once confidently called literature. 
No matter how pointless things may have felt at any given moment, A said, you could always tell yourself that you were taking part in a conversation, an exchange that stretched back into the immeasurable past and on into a future that you couldn't yet imagine. That was the conceit. Not progress, but continuity at least. You could tell yourself that it was the conversation that mattered. Almost this stream of voices flowing through the centuries, this ancient, almost sacred thing that is bigger and deeper than any of us alone. But what if it's going to end soon? What if someone in a generation, perhaps two, will write the very last word? What if the future does not include enough human beings to keep the conversation going? What if it drifts off like a party at the end of the night, with only a few drunks left mumbling in the corners? What if the humans who remain are too busy surviving to tend to the books and the servers? What if literacy has a horizon and it's near? Isn't it all just noise then? I should add that we were laughing, or smiling at least. We were still high from the walk and it felt good to say these things aloud. The astounding vanity of it, I added, had never felt clearer. This hope that someone in a hundred years would hear you, that you might be able to give that person something. Just like all the times you'd been lifted and redeemed by the whispers of the dead rustling through the pages of books. How painful and absurd this fantasy, that your own labors might in turn be redeemed by strangers centuries and perhaps continents away, who would need to hear what you had to whisper. This delusion that you were doing anything other than babbling because you liked the sounds it makes, like a child blowing bubbles into milk. But without those strangers waiting for you, what's the point? Even if the New York Times loves you and everyone reads your books, today and tomorrow and even next summer, what is any of it worth? Gossip squeaked between lemmings racing for the cliffs. Why bother to write when there will be no one left to read? Really, I mean it when I say that we were smiling. We were talking about the end of time and the increasingly probable destruction of everything we knew and loved. We didn't relish any of it, but in the context of the walk we had just taken, time took a different shape. The desert enforces its own perspective. It shrinks you and puts eternity in the foreground. If you're open to it and don't mind a diminished role in this drama, it insists quietly on the surging beauty of all things and non-things living and dead and not formally alive. I felt an unfamiliar gladness, soft and pressing, bubbling up. I've thought about it many times in the months that have passed since then. The strange buzzing joy I felt standing in that parking lot, saying goodbye and then driving home alone. Even at the time it felt crazy, like I really was high, though I was entirely sober. It was as if I knew, though I couldn't have known, that I was stepping onto the path that these pages record as if the joy of discovery preceded the exploration, and I were grateful for a journey that I had not yet undertaken, that I didn't even know I was on. I wouldn't start writing until at least a week later, and when I did, I had no idea it would become this book. I didn't intend to write a book at all, much less to wage a battle against time, or at least against a certain conception of it, the one that still rules most of our lives and determines how we live then, how we might conceive of what has passed before us and of the futures it still might be possible to hold, to build. But that is what I did. That is where those owls would lead me. To fight against that notion of time, I would have to understand how it came to be shaped the way it is and why we experience it as we do. I would have to ask what histories had to be erased and what new narratives invented for time to rule our lives this way. To figure out, if I could, 
how those emissions and accretions led us precisely to this perilous moment in which everything, time included, appears to be on the verge of collapse. This book, but I don't think I've heard you read it aloud. Um, we were laughing. We were. We were, laughing. We were laughing. Um, it, was, it was a joyous dinner. It was exhilarating. Um, the owls. Um, so maybe the first thing I wanted to ask just is like, um, because the owls did sort of announce a method and they do appear throughout the book, different owls, um, as part of sort of the method of, of the book. It's, I admire the writing and the way that this book unfolds so much. Um, the way it combines um, kind of that a prose imagistic clarity that I associate sort of with prose fiction um, with a journalist precision, but its method that I associate generalized poetry the way it definitely is not a straightforward narrative, right? It builds and turns and jumps and loops as befits both the movement of the owls that day and um, sort of that the investigation of time and the interrogation of time, both the time that seems to hold up our civilization that's collapsing and have supported its horrors, and also the time of collapse, the strange insurrectionary time that, for example, we're living in now. Um, and so I wanted to ask first, just thinking of the owls as part of the method, as both like as the, as the avatars of that method, um, what of all the places that the owls took you, what were some of the most surprising? Ooh, um, it was all pretty surprising. I mean, you, you kind of set me out on this because while we were on that, um, walking through that wash and, and marveling at those owls, one of the first things you said was, oh, they're like the owls of Shivalba, like the, the messengers uh. of the God of the dead in the, in the Popol Vuh, the, the, the great um, Kiche Maya text. Um, and I was pretty sure I'd read that ages ago. Um, turned out I remembered nothing, um, but I went back and read it again and read about those owls and those owls led me, um, I think most immediately to a Borges story. Um, and then I started thinking about the, that line from Hegel, the owl of Minerva flies only at night, which of course ropes in, um, you know, history, um, in its, in its broadest sense. Um, and, um, that led me to, uh, um, through Roman myth to this, um, feminist archeologist, um, named Maria Gimbutas. Um, and that somehow led me to Lilith, um, who mm -hmm. was associated with owls. Um, and, and it kind of kept, and I felt like it was completely insane. I mean, I, I fortunately, like about a month after I got this, maybe it was two months after um, that walk, um, I started a um, fellowship in Las Vegas um, and had access to a university library. Um, but I, I was living alone in Las Vegas in this tiny little apartment um, in a city where I knew no one, um, which is probably one of the most alienating cities on the planet. Um, <laughs> And I, and I was just reading and writing about owls um, and, and, and pretty sure that I completely lost it. And every now and again, someone would ask me what I was, you know, what I was, um, what I was doing there with, with like this wonderful opportunity to, to not have to work and just be able to read and write. And I'd be like, oh, well, I'm, I'm reading about Lilith. 
um, and they'd be like Lilith, <laughs> like Lilith Fair, oh, you know. Um, and uh, I think this insanity kind of became a method. Um, you know, like as I came to understand that what I was writing about was was an investigation of time, um, and that it was critical of linear notions of time, um, and critical of the kind of broad teleological sweep suggested by um, the thinking of someone like Hegel, um, and critical of the notion of progress, um, that it had to have a shape of its own, um, it, it, like it had to take on a different form. Um, and those owls uh, certainly suggested it, um, the way they swooped back and forth um, and reappeared in surprising places. Um, and they continue to do that in my head for, for months to come. Um, and my decision early on was to was to just let those um, let those connections be what led me, um, both both theoretically and in um, in terms of the you know the problems that I was trying to solve, um, but also formally and, and how I and how I put it together and try to um, map out a different kind of linkages that wasn't uh, that wasn't linear and that wasn't um, that didn't have to obey the kind of hierarchies. Um, that always come into play when you have, when you try to draw a straight line. Um, and it has that pleasure that notebook, right? It has, of it, of like it's paratactical, it's traditional, and also things unfold in the process. Events happen, because there's all the investigations that the owls lead you to, and then there's just events happen with um, the president, for example, is called the Rhino in this book. His name is never mentioned. Um, and events- We don't have to say his name. That's yeah, we okay. don't have to. Yeah, we won't. Um, right. And um, stars, so much about the desert and about stars, and that's another portal into time. Um, and and just like like what happened, like what you happen to pass, that like, comes in right? as the book unfolds its own its own time, as it also interrogates the time that it's going up against. There's a whole incredible path. There's a the whole incredible exploration of just the of, of clock time and the invention of clock time and the recent development recentness of the invention of clock time um, that then when paired with all the physics and astrophysics in there dismantles but so much at least for me as a reader mm -hmm. I was wondering um, if we could talk about uh, this sort of sense of the, the investigation of time that happened for you and, and the urgency of it that built and built and it comes out of it didn't have this book didn't happen then, and it happened in in the years that it happened that in in the building crisis that is that we're now deep 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 in right um i was wondering like what sort of things that you found that you were led to in the book um what kind of reflections or thoughts they led you to about the experience of time that um, obviously everybody's living this time differently, but at the same time, this is a collective experience. Mm -hmm. um, about what sort of experiences of time and of collapse, um, the collapse of the dominant sort of time of this particular civilization, particularly in this country, that have resonated for you with what was happening um, when you were following the owls in this book. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something I'd been I, I'd been thinking about. Obviously, like I I must have had a lot on my mind before we went on that walk, um, and and then um, and then basically as soon as we went on that walk, I was thrown into this obsessive investigation um, that lasted until this book was finished. 
um, and um, you know, like like most good obsessions, it kind of comes on like an illness, and, and and suddenly everything is connecting, and everything is making sense, and you're seeing everything, you know, linkages between everything, and and uh, you know, you're like a like a meth freak for um, for months, but it's just it's just pure ideas that are um, you're chasing down, and but I, I think all that obviously was building, um, and I think a lot of it was the first year of the current president's administration um since you know i started writing this in november of 2017 so it'd been a year at that point um and had been living in the desert all that time um and i'm sure most people remember i mean right now time certainly seems broken right um i think for for a lot of us um time has lost its shape it's baggy it's weird it stretches it's um, it has all these weird rooms in it that we didn't know were there and probably didn't want to visit, you know. Um, but I think we got a taste of this in the first few months after the election. Um, I'd say maybe the first six months after the election before it started to, to kind of normalize a bit. Um, and I think it was something that most Americans are, are, you know, have been able to be unfamiliar with for the last few decades. Um, when suddenly there was a new scandal, there was a new outrage, there was a new... Um, terrifying anxiety. There was a new horror. Um, there was a new, could you believe he did that? Um, there was a new danger. Um, almost every day, sometimes several times a day, the news cycle like sped up in this extraordinary way. Um, it was all you could do to just keep checking your phone to see what, you know, what lunacy was happening. Um, and I certainly experienced that as time breaking down. I think a lot of other people did too. Um, and it was something that I've been thinking about for some time because um, a couple of years earlier, I had been um, living in Palestine, in the West Bank, um, to work on my previous book. And while I was there, um, the war in Gaza of 2014 broke out. And for several months before that war began, uh, Israeli troops had entered the West Bank and flooded the West Bank and sealed it off. Um, and in that period too, in those months leading up to war, um, time suddenly changed its shape. Um, it sped up, it slowed down, it sped up, it slowed down, it took weird turns. Um, and I'd had similar experiences before that, but I started to think about um, the degree to which time is a collective experience, you know? Um, and when a collectivity, a society enters a period of crisis, time gets all messed up. Um, it, it, it loses its shape. And, um, and I think this is true on an individual level too, right? I mean, if you experience any kind of individual trauma in your life, um, you've surely had the experience of feeling out of, out of sync with everybody. Your time for, you're, you're kind of pushed out of time. Um, and I think that, that happens for societies. It happened for all of us in the, in the first months of the, uh, after the last election. And it, has certainly happened, I think, since the pandemic began. Um, so that started to push me to ask if, if we're outside of it, you know, what is this thing that we're all inside most of the time? Um, and, and why is it like that? Why do we experience it the way we do? Why, why, is it, why does it have minutes and hours? Um, why do we worry about counting them? Why do we worry about wasting them? Um, why do we think about spending them? Um, where do we think it's going? What does it mean if it's going to end? Um, so those are the questions I started to ask. And I started to read as much as I could, not only um, to throw light on our own 
understandings of time, um, you know, going back to the Enlightenment and before. Um, but I started reading um, as much as I can about other cultures that had completely different notions of time. Um, and particularly, um, tried to look at as much as I could at the, um, the people who lived in the very place that I was living in, the Mojave. Um, and meaning the, the Chemawebi, the Mojave, um, the Serrano, um, the, the various uh, communities who, who still live um, in the desert that I was living in and who had lived there long before I or anyone who looks anything like me had showed up there. Um, and, and that was, uh, those exchanges were particularly fruitful for me, I think. There we are. Oh, so that, there's kind of two different avenues I want to go on. So maybe I'll kind of ask both questions and you can decide which owl you will follow. Um, okay. first. um, because there's one question, like I was going to ask, given the name of the book, like the desert, like how was the desert helpful in thinking? all this and lingering and being with all this stuff um, and um, that, that you talk about in the book. Um, but at the same time, um, thinking about collapse, and we, we talked a lot about this recently when we've been chatting via, via the various platforms that we've been chatting on um, prior to this thing, the experience, the particular experience of collapse that's accelerated even more um, and into this weird vortex and, or whatever this eddy or pool, whatever it is that, that we're in now, it's those times. Has taken the shape of um, with the person called the Rhino, the president in the book, um, taking on now in the last few days, especially right that that, that 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 the Rhino's campaign has become a war that is very much about time. Like something has become very clear that the whole crisis about time yeah. is um, is at the at the heart of what all of this is. I mean, the, the Rhino has made his campaign be about um, an armed provocative defense of a certain idea of the dead, namely statues of the dead. Um, basically, it seems to be the entire campaign now of, as you were pointing out in a conversation we had recently, that we've gone, you went from make America great again to keep America great, um, a, a slogan that feels definitely and definitely ironic, right, given the given the current circumstance. Um, but in that, right, as, you, as we feel the what feels like in many on many days like the collapse of a certain sort of time um, a certain sort of progress a certain sort of settler movement towards a frontier which now no longer exists i think that when you look at the things that are happening in portland right now for example it's it seems not beyond ironic it just seems like inevitable that the troops that are riding around in rented cars grabbing protesters off the street are border cops sent from the frontier to fight it out in the streets of portland um as as all this history, all this unresolved history and horror and trauma of America comes up and is contested every day over monuments and in front of the federal courthouse and all those things. But in, in the book, and in the book confronts this sort of time intensely and builds on the history of it, but it also presents all alternative forms of time, both through the embodied experience of the desert itself, through especially like how, how into the stars you got um, during this period, um, but also mm -hmm. You're reading in uh, particular about the Chen Weber um, and sort of experience uh, of time and space and narrative um, that you found there, uh, where at certain points there's that feeling of like, what if the earth, and it is 
his name gets off of the stars and, and the, with that kind of reading and also your own stargazing come together it's sort of a different experience of time that starts to feel like it starts to appear and become possible and experiencing the earth as a clock uh, in contrast to um, the clock time that is that is uh, that you get such a um, crisp history of in the book but I would I was thinking about like how do we conceive of, and we've been talking about this too, against the time of this thing that feels so rotten. And that's the last thing. Um, what other forms of time are imaginable, um, especially that framing it as you are as time as a social experience, that you have that you had of that, right? Of what other sort of memory experience time might be important that's going down the path. So that's one angle of the question. The other one is the same question. How did you ever come to the Well, I can, I can try to answer both of those in a single, I can try to bring them together. Um, and, and to say that, yeah, um, the, I mean, the other half that I didn't mention of what got me thinking about this was, was moving to the desert. Um, and leaving behind, and I, I moved out there um, just after the election, like I think two weeks after the election, not because of that, but that's just when the lease started. Um, and um, that meant, and you know, I would see people occasionally. I, I didn't live alone most of the time. I would, I would see Anthony. I had a couple other friends out there, but but you spend a lot of time by yourself out there, and a lot of time looking at the stars, a lot of time listening to the wind, um, a lot of time, you know, um, listening to the sounds and sights of this landscape and you leave the social time that we live in the cities. You leave this time that is completely dependent on, on people um, and only exists, uh, you know, as a social um, construct. Uh, you know, you have to deal with it a little bit if you're going to make a living still, but like, nonetheless, um, you're aware of, of other kinds of time. Um, and the, this is the circling of the stars, um, both the, all, all of the rhythms of the, um, the moon and the stars and the sun, um, the very, very slow time um, that you become aware of, you know, by which the, the landscape itself is created. Um, you know the the carving of the rocks by the wind and water um and at the same time the, these faster rhythms of the season um so, so all, all of these alert you to these other kinds of time and one of the things that i thought about a lot as i started writing about this was how invisible most of those kinds of time have been to most european anglo-europeans who've come through the desert um, and the desert is conceived of as a place of timelessness, um, as a place that does not change, that has no rhythms, that is simply dead um, and outside of time and outside of history. Um, and also as a place um, in which humans cannot exist. Um, and of course, you know, plenty of humans have existed and thrived in these deserts. Um, and that way of thinking about the desert began to me to seem emblematic of a broader trend in, I think, in European Enlightenment thinking um, of understanding time 
using time as a way to displace thinking about basically about race um, and thinking, for instance, of the Americas, um, meaning indigenous Americans um, and Africa as the place of the past, right? In the same way that Europe was the place of the future um, in the same way that like white America was the place of the future. Um, and, um, and everything that was the place of the past was sort of thrown outside of time and thrown outside of life. Um, these were completely lifeless places that could be, you know, you could use them to, to test atom bombs and for uranium mining and tear them up. And, um, and, and that was sort of all that mattered. Um, and thinking about this more made me keenly aware of the ways in which we have conceived time um, having grown alongside this really white supremacist narrative, this, uh, this sort of way of um, centering European understandings and European experiences um, through time, right? So that we still understand progress. And, you know, I think that we still implicitly understand progress and development as a kind of Europeanization of the world um, and bringing the world uh, into capitalism and into liberal democracy and all these wonderful um, achievements of, of the West. Um, and around this, certainly in the US, um, certain mythologies uh, were built, um, Manifest Destiny um, being one of them, um, you know, myths about the destiny of, uh, you know, of, of essentially white Americans to, to lead the country to greatness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, and Trump has been, uh, I used his, his name, I used his name, um, that guy, the rhino, um, has been um, running entirely on those myths. Um, and, and whatever else he is, he is, um, I think he has some weird instinctual hold on them, um, on, the, on, the, on the kind of brutish, like the, like the dumbest and most brutish symbolism, um, which is still really powerful for a lot of people. So, you know, we've been talking um, recently, Anthony and I, about uh, um, the speech he gave at uh, Mount Rushmore um, a week or two ago. Uh, you know, like there's no like greater symbol of, of both hubris and genocide um, than, than, than those faces carved into that mountain um, and of the, like an absolute erasure um, of all other pasts and all other peoples and all other forms of life. Um, and uh, it was a perfect spot for him to give this like wildly white supremacist speech um, in which, uh, yeah, he sings the praises of, 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 of Las Vegas and Miami as the, as the great achievements of American culture. And, and not just Las Vegas and Miami, but the, the Ford F-150. And uh, uh, what was it? Anyway, yeah, I, I won't go on. Um, but I don't, I don't know if I'm too far afield from answering your question. Oh, the, the last part of your question um, was... You know, how can we conceive of some some other kind of time? Um, and, and that's not something that I think um, that I can do. Uh, I think that's something that, that is a collective task. Um, and and it's not something that can be done in the abstract. Um, it's something that has to be done materially through through uh, changes in the way we relate to one another. Um, and the kind of time we experience now, I think, is entirely mediated by by capitalism and by commodity culture and and by the you know the legacies of, of racial violence that, I, that I've been kind of hinting at um, and by undoing those I think uh, 
another form of time will will certainly arise. And I guess the, the only kind of uh, thing I can hint at is, is that I, I know, you know, from my own experience that the in protests in in um, in collective action, um, a different kind of time emerges, um, a, a sort of insurrectionary time, um, which which forges a different kind of connection between people, a different sort of relationship to, to past and to, and to future. Um, and uh, I think that is um, the value of that um, should not be underestimated. It seems like in thinking of what's what what's going on right now, we, we do feel like we're in an insurrectionary time, too, and the battle that's being phrased by the rhino is it explicitly a battle over the dead over not just whose life whose lives matter but which dead lives matter and um, which dead lives come forward and also different kinds of death i think the type of death that is being covered in a crazy rock more speech right as a certain kind of stone garden of stone death um whereas like what you're talking about in insurrectionary time seems like a different, different relationship to the presence or the co-presence of the dead. But it looks like we're running out of time here. Yeah. Because we were thinking about, I, I, we, there was one sort of, there's one excerpt that, that we were going to lead into, but if we're running out of time. Yeah. No. Can you read more? I w- that was yeah. kind of an accident of, um, I meant to keep myself small, but. But you became large. There you are. <laughs> Good to see it. Um, hey, um, yeah. Were Were you going to read more, Ben? Yeah, a little, a little bit. If there's, okay. do we do we have time? I mean, uh... yeah, we've got we got time. We've got messianic time over here. Um, maybe we can. Yeah, do if you want to read something, and then we can do the Q and A right after. Okay. Okay. Does that seem good? Cool. Yeah. Sure. Um. Um. Okay, so I'm going to read, uh, yeah, Messianic Time, um, and uh, the the this uh, the book is um, structured through these these sort of fragmentary bits um, that sometimes the ones that neighbor each other have a lot to do with each other, and sometimes they have nothing to do with each other, um, and their relationships become clear through through accretion, basically, um, and so I'm going to read uh, one from towards the end of the book, which is about Walter Benjamin and this notion of Messianic Time. Um, and then one after that, which is about um, Las Vegas and recounts a night on the Las Vegas Strip. And I want to warn you that that section ends with some lines from a country music song um, that I'm sure if any of you have spent any time driving in the south and the west of the U.S. um, in the parts of the country where uh, radio stations are limited to country music songs, you have heard this song. Uh, It's called God Bless the USA. Um, and I'm not going to sing it. So I'm just warning you, uh, I'm, I'm going to say it and it's going to sound awful because I will not sing it. Okay. I'm going to read now. Perhaps we can now begin to make sense of Walter Benjamin's conviction that the past contains within it an orientation towards its own redemption. That what he called the time of now is shot through with chips of messianic time. If eternity, all the past and every future flits through every moment, then we can grab it there right here, in other words. For Benjamin, this could only be a political act. It meant rejecting any structures that relied on the exploitation of labor, which is to say, not only our muscles and our skills, but our time, being as it pulses through our veins. 
or on the mastery of nature, which was, he suggested, of a peace with the exploitation of human beings. And it meant rejecting the ideology of progress, the slumberous fantasy that history will carry us to some better land. It would not. Seen without the gilded lies that comprise what we call civilization, history is an assemblage of massacres, mass enslavements, conflagrations, a growing accretion of ruins. Time had to be blasted out and history blasted open. Only then could it be redeemed and with it us. This was not for Benjamin a choice. It wasn't that redemption lay behind some distant gate at the end of a path that we could choose not to walk, that there were other smoother and easier roads that we might take with less effort on which we might nonetheless survive. Then, as now, the only other way led to extinction. Benjamin wrote the theses on the philosophy of history early in 1940 in the months following his release from a French internment camp in an empty chateau near the city of Nevers. The war had already begun. In June of that year, German troops entered Paris. Benjamin fled first to Limoges and then to Marseille. He left a handwritten copy of the theses there with his friend Hannah Arendt, another German Jewish philosopher who was like him, hoping to secure passage to the United States by way of Portugal. That September, Benjamin made it as far as the small seaside town of Port Bou, on the Spanish side of the border with France. Informed by the local police that he would be delivered the next morning to the French authorities, and thence almost certainly to the Gestapo, Benjamin, ill and exhausted, despaired. Alone in his hotel room, he swallowed an overdose of morphine tablets. His body still lies in Port Bou, in a cemetery high on a cliff overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. Arendt made it out. She and her husband were allowed to leave France and travel through Spain into Portugal, where they spent three months stranded in Lisbon. They passed the hours reading Benjamin's words aloud to one another and to the small group of refugees who had gathered there, waiting to sail to safety on the edge of a crumbling world. Another round of goodbye drinks last night, this time with T, the other fellow who'd been gone on book tour for most of the term, and M and D, who work at the Institute. Piecing together what happened is like reconnecting a dream. The pieces don't fit, or they keep slipping away, or seem so improbable that they must have belonged to someone else's dream. It was T's idea that we could all go bowling at an alley on the strip, but it turned out that Anthrax was playing and the bowling alley was closed. Or maybe it was open, but you had to buy an anthrax ticket if you wanted to bowl. So we had dinner instead at a Mexican restaurant overlooking a sea of people shuffling through an outdoor mall. And then I think the goal was to play bingo at one of the casinos, but we couldn't figure out where to play it or if it could be played at all. So T shepherded us along the strip to see the volcano show at the barrage. After that, we could see the dancing fountains of the Bellagio. T had seen them several times before. The fountain, she promised, would be amazing, would be amazing. Mainly I remember the crowds on the sidewalks, packed so close that staying together while walking forward took constant focus and effort. All those bodies strapped into wheelchairs or swathed in shorts or tight-fitting dresses or bikinis and bunny ears, all of us so grotesquely, densely mortal beneath the infinite promise of the neon lights. We passed a man lying barefoot and unconscious, bleeding all over the concrete from a gash in his foot. Like everyone else, we stopped, wondered if we should do something, walked on. 
The Falun Gong people were out in force with banners and amplifiers, broadcasting something about organ theft in Chinese prisons. A truck kept circling on Las Vegas Boulevard, towing a mobile billboard with giant photos of nearly naked blonde women and the words, Call 24 hours, girls, direct to you. Outside the moat surrounding the mirage, protesters waved signs reading, Life in a bathtub is no life at all, and Mirage dolphins have no shade. I didn't see the dolphins, but right on schedule, the fake mountain on the far side of the moat erupted in great jets of flame. Spurting fountains transformed water into foaming lava with the help of orange lights. Hillary Clinton's voice crackled out of the following gang speakers behind me. She was speaking sternly about human rights violations in China. Above the volcano towered the, ho above the, volcano towered the hotel, its top floor is covered with an enormous ad for the Mirage's Cirque du Soleil franchise. A single word, love. We followed tea like ducklings. At some point we drifted into the Venetian, but all I remember are long colonnades and the gondolas and the canals between the casino and the street, and M beside me saying, this is all Sheldon Adelson's. While I wondered what it's like to come here and land a job as a gondolier, and pull tourists around the shallow fountains for eight hours and go home to your roommates, get stoned and watch TV. T led us farther down, or maybe up the strip towards the Bellagio. Space seemed to have bent. We had veered off the sidewalk and streamed along like so many minnows through the sparkling lobbies of casino after casino until I had no idea where we were or how far we had come. We got there just in time to hear a few lonely maudlin country chords blasting through the speakers as the fountains began to leap, hundreds of them all at once, shooting thousands or tens of thousands of gallons of water higher in the air than seemed possible, the jets leaping in sync with the music, Lee Greenwood suddenly crooning, because the flag still stands for freedom, I'm singing it, <laughs> and they can't take that away. The water rose and the water fell, arcing and twisting, lit a gleaming white against the dark, still pool beneath us. M and D had wandered off somewhere. Lee Greenwood croaked on, and I'm proud to be American, where at least I know I'm free. I stood beside T and watched the fountains all spurting up together as the song approached a climax that seemed to never end. T shook her head, her eyes wide in awe and horror. I swear, she said, last time it was Elton John. That's it, thank you. And there it is, that in that 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 vague there that there was the apotheosis of manifest destiny in that Rushmore speech of exactly. <laughs> the right there it is, right there, all of it, manifest yep. destiny, which which he said uh, had begun like five centuries ago in Europe. Let us let oh, us. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> America's destiny began on Jesus's first birthday, I believe. Yeah. Whichever well, one. Whichever it was one. was a Pisces. <laughs> Um, I, uh, I just texted my mom to ask her about the two Jesuses to, to do a fact check on that, but she hasn't gotten back to me. So I'll let you know. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read some of these questions and, uh, feel free to answer, you know, as, as, as you feel moved to do so. Um, so, uh, You've got one from Louise. She's a longtime fan. 
She was looking forward to reading your book. Hi, Louise. I'm a longtime <laughs> fan of Louise's too. Uh, and then, uh, do you think desert frontier lit or study has been gendered and focused on the male experience? What are new developments in this regard? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like the, the kind of like classics of uh, um, desert lit, like, like Edward Abbey's work. Um, I, I have a hard time reading Edward Abbey because he's so macho um and um yeah it, it's it's the super like man against the elements kind of uh um sort of 1970s toughness to it um which which i find uh a, a pretty fast turn off um and uh i i think that's generally true i think like i mean what charles bowden's work also has like a like a sort of deep um machismo running through it um um I think there's certainly, yeah. I mean, I, like someone like Natalie Diaz's work, I think is 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 uh, to me way more interesting, um, instructive way of, of looking at the desert. Um, Anthony, help me. You. Uh, well, I mean, I think that there's a certain sort of strand of American desert writing that is heavily male. That could also include like Mark Twain and Ruffin. Um, and oh, God, I can't remember the famous book. Here, there's a book. Wait, Anthony, I, I missed what you just said. Could you repeat the last thing you said? Um, there's a, I think if, if you look like, there's a great book by the historian Patricia Limerick. Um, oh God, now what is it called? The Desert Narratives, where, where she, she gives a history of different representations of the desert, beginning with Twain and ending with Abby, going through these books by these different men about the desert and charting. And Patricia Limerick uh, being uh, the or being being a proper historian, it's you know irony and detail. Um, and she points out, as she points out in one of her other books, that uh, the history of the West couldn't have happened without canned food. The history of the West. That everywhere you go in the West, you'll find cans because these people didn't have any food, and they had to bring it in cans. And she charts the history of all these books of all these different kinds of male adventure um, in relation to um, food supply and transportation. Um, and those are that's a particular lineage. But if you think about different kinds of books about the about the desert, there's a, there's a, there's a whole sort of um, Mary Austin, one of the main writers of. Yeah. Uh, or you think of people, Utah people like Terry Tempest Williams and Ellen McCoy. Um, I think of there being, and those are gendered in their own way too, right? Those books are, are very particular stuff. And and then also other books about desert life by people who have been there for a long time. But I think there's a certain sort of desert, like Abbey in particular, and I think the hold Abbey had over a certain type of um, imagination of the desert in relation to environment, um, and then sort of reckoning that people had to have maybe makes that work and that strand overshadow other strands that do exist. Um, yeah, I agree. Forward, yeah. You know? Yeah, like uh, the. I mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of all different kinds of people writing about the desert, but there's certain ones that kind of capture the popular attention and that people really get fixated on. And like um, somebody just, I, I was just listening to uh, the White Heart of Mojave, uh, like mm -hmm. an audio book of it. Do you know that? Um, it's kind of a weird one. It's like. Um, 
I forget the author's name, but she's like a woman in the 19th century and she's like driving a car out into the Mojave desert with her other woman friend and people are like scandalized by it. And they're like, what are you, what can you possibly be doing? This is like madness. And um, it's, it's a great book. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I like that question a lot. I, um, but I, the other thing that that reminded me of Ben is that this book, uh, the desert notebooks, which I really, I, I really like it. And uh, one thing I love about it is it's like a reader's book, you know, because it's kind of a lit review of all these different things. And it's, um, it's really enjoyable in that way. Cause I'm one of those people that I like to know what I don't have to read. So I really love when other people um, kind of like <laughs> digest things like Martin Bernal, which like, uh, that's, I know the size of those books, you know, those are like real big 500 pagers it's a piece. Three volumes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. and I, did you read all three of those? That would be my main question. I found, you. I found that um, volumes one and three were useful to me, but volume two was not. Cause that's um, like I'll, the I'll that. linguistic evidence. I think that was the linguistic right? evidence. Yeah. This yeah, is that Martin Bernal's uh, Black Athena we're talking about, um, which is amazing, <laughs> fascinating work, but very long. Also, yeah. Um, okay, let's keep going in the questions. Sorry, I don't want to get bogged down with my own thoughts. Uh, okay. Um, somebody wants to know uh, where you went to graduate school. Is they're considering <laughs> graduate school. I never went to graduate school. But yeah, no gods, no yeah. schools, no masters. Graduate schools, no masters. All right. Um, okay, let's keep going here. I would advise against going to graduate school. <laughs> Are there conversations with artists about reimagined concepts of time that you have encountered and found and find interesting? One thing I've been seeing during this insurrectionary time is artists engaging in imagination and innovation laboratories where they engage in and conceive together of how to move forward from here and how to reimagine collective concepts. Um, are there conversations with artists that I've been not that I can think of in, 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 you know, in these particular like insurrectionary moments of, of the past few months. Um, that's interesting, but I know, I, I, I mean, I do think that, uh, you know, we, the media anyway, tends to look at, uh, at protest, um, in these very utilitarian terms, well, what did it achieve? Um, and often protests don't, you know, result in, in policy changes. Um, but they, for people who take part in them, um, they can be absolutely transformational. Um, and, and a lot of, uh, you know, creative ferment, um, occurs in those contexts. Um, and I'm, you know, the, the, the protests that are still going on that have been going on um since george floyd's death um are the largest protests that have ever occurred in, in american history i mean more people um have participated and are participating you know than, than ever before um and that can be an absolutely radicalizing experience for people um and i think the the impact of that is not something we're going to necessarily feel like it's like if nothing happens in congress next season none of us should be surprised but i think the impact um of, of all of this 
will be felt for really for a generation. Um, uh, and I hope it will. Yeah, I don't answer your question at all. But. <laughs> I, I also recommend, you know, protest time as a great way of experiencing a time shift, you know, it 100% it, it will do the same thing that the desert does, it just will completely destroy your sense of who you think you are. And it's great. Everyone should do it. Um, yeah. Okay, more questions. Are there languages that allow for a more fluid conversation and or concept of time that you know of? Hmm. None that I speak. <laughs> Anthony, do you have any ideas about that? I'm not, I wonder what, what's meant by languages. I mean, like, 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 like existing languages, like, uh, like Spanish, English, um, I don't know. You know, I mean, it seems like definitely the grammar of certain languages has a different, a different relationship and lays out a different sort of understanding of time. But I don't know from inside well enough. The only languages that I feel like I speak well enough that are English and Spanish to feel like they really, really inhabit the time of the other ones. That, the other ones I've studied that have very different times. Vietnamese at a very different time, but I didn't learn to speak it enough to really feel like I understood what the experience of time was like inside Vietnamese for a person in Vietnam. But it definitely clearly was very different um, how time was laid out. But I think sometimes when when you're coming from outside a language and you don't get inside it, differences in grammar can create can be very easy to romanticize into like some sort of you know, other sort of time. Um, but certainly everything that I've read about the languages of native peoples of this continent necessarily and the space and the land. Um, but how those would be helpful to English speakers in this place, I don't know. You know, it's hard to understand. But it's very easy. But I find it very, it's such an interesting question. It's so important to decenter and I'm losing your voice, Anthony. Oh, sorry. It seems really important to like to, to understand that your that your own grammar is structuring your experience of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whether there's whether there's a language out there that is better or is the right one, I wonder. I worry about that 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 approach to things, but certainly understanding that there are other ones and that they're priorities and other values that are one that we might that people in this moment who are feeling trapped might long for um have great longing for yeah the other thing i would add is i, I think that um i would certainly like grammatical structures like you know affect our experience of time but i think Capitalism has, has like profoundly shifted uh, people's experience of time across the entire globe, um, you know, regardless of the language that, that we speak, um, you know, having to, yeah, having to sell your labor for, you know, uh, for wages that are, that are, you know, based on an hourly rate, um, having to think about your own time in terms of money, um, having to um, sort of parcel off little bits of yourself um and be very aware of them 
um, as they pass um, and make sure that you're using them efficiently, um, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I think this, uh, whatever the grammatical structures you're going in with, um, this is going to shift your experience of time, I think, in, in similar ways across the globe um, and flatten it out. Um, and I think that's certainly something that's happened in the last century and a half. And it's accompanied by language extinctions. Like yeah. that flattening is also accompanied by that, by the extinction of, yeah. of languages everywhere, along with species. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple more questions and then we probably have to wrap it up. Um, uh, so the last one is, do you think this book is a yes to the act of writing as something worthwhile to undertake in the Anthropocene or is that still an open question for you? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How was the experience yeah. of writing this book for you? No. <laughs> During um, yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I think I set out in the, in the little bit that I, that I read, um, in the very beginning of this, some of the questions that, that the, the book tries to ask. And I guess my answer is implicit in the fact that I wrote the book, you know? Um, and had to um, reconceive of my relationship to writing, I think, um, in order to make sense of what I was doing. Um, and, and that's what I think the book, the book tried to do, to try to um, understand writing outside of these sort of conceptions of linear time. Um, and to try to find other kinds of justification um, for it. And, you know, I, um, things that nothing lasts, you know, um, and that's okay. Um, and writing won't either. Um, and uh, those of us who have uh, this strange ailment that makes us do it are going to keep doing it. And, and hopefully, um, hopefully in a way that is... Uh, you know, that, that helps each other. Um, and it takes takes each other to places that uh, we wouldn't be able to go by ourselves. And that's worth doing. Um, so the last question is a question that I asked, but I, um, I, I'm gonna actually just paraphrase it and say like, I really liked how you wrote about, um, like how in the book, the climate kind of like, was just like hitting you in these, I'm just thinking about the moment with the penguins where you're just like, and, and then the like massive die off of it. And, and the way that you wrote about it was really, I loved it, but it, I mean, it's horrific, but it's like what we're all going through. And it felt very, um, I, I loved how you wrote about it. So that's, that's all I wanted to say is like, thanks oh, for thank interrogating you. progress and, and talking about the climate, you know? Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks, everybody. Uh, did, are there any last questions or anything else that um, you guys want to ask Ben or Anthony? Any last last thoughts or words? Uh, support uh, Skylight Books um, and don't yep. give money to Amazon.com. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. 
Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.